0: what is the relationship between the laws of God and the promises of God? Now, that's the primary question facing us in Galatians. The Galatians had come to Christ on the basis of a promise. Paul told them that God promised to forgive their sins and would become their friend if they would express faith in his son. If they would acknowledge that they had sinned and were unable to pay for that sin, but that Jesus could pay for their sin and, in fact, had done so on the cross, and if they would spiritually join him on the cross, die to self, and bury the old man in a grave of baptism and let him live his life through them, they could live with him forever. That was the gospel, the good news. And it was based on what Christ had done, not on what they had done. That's not to say, however, that they had to do nothing. Obviously, they had to accept the offer and allow Christ to come into their life. Doing so would change them dramatically and would alter their behavior in many ways, but they did not earn God's friendship by agreeing to accept his offer. By accepting the offer, they merely demonstrated that they had faith, that they trusted the one making the offer, and that they wanted to receive the promises made available through it. So the Galatians had come to God through faith in his promises, promises made available through his son. Then the Judaizers came to town and said, fine, fine, but don't forget the law. You know, God has made some promises, but he's also made some laws. And they convinced the Galatians that they had to obey the law to receive the promises. Now, that makes sense. And it made sense to the Galatians. And they began searching out God's laws with a little help from their newfound friends. And they tried to obey them. The men were making appointments for their circumcisions. The Ten Commandments were tacked on the wall. And they began watching what they ate and with whom they fellowshipped. In short, they became Jewish. They entered into the same kind of relationship with God that the Jews had had for 1,500 years, and they felt good about it. They felt special. They felt religious. Hall, on the other hand, was horrified by what they had done. In fact, he said they had been bewitched by going back to the law They had, in effect, said that God's grace was not sufficient, that what Christ did on the cross was not enough, and that if a man really wanted a relationship with God, he would still have to earn it through obedience to the law. The problem with that, of course, is that no one can do it. No one. Can perfectly obey the law. And since no one can do it, the law ends up condemning us. It doesn't give life, it puts everyone under a curse. The question then is why was it given? You know, Paul has already made it clear that Abraham came into relationship with God by faith, by trusting in the promises of God. So why did God then give Moses the law? And what effect did the law have on the promise? The Judaizers argued that since the law came after the promise, that the promise was conditioned by the law. Paul, however, is going to counter their argument in classic rabbinical style and show the real reason the law was given. Let's see if we can follow his thinking and come to a proper understanding of the relationship between the law and the promises. Paul begins by making it clear that the law didn't change the promise. We're in Galatians chapter 3. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed is christ what i'm saying is this the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by god so as to nullify the promise for if the inheritance is based on law it is no longer based on a promise god has granted it to abraham by means of a promise Paul changes the tone of his letter here. Rather than continuing to refer to them as foolish Galatians, he calls them brethren. In spite of their poor theology, they were still his brothers in Christ. And he knew that they didn't understand the implications of what they had bought into. So it begins... Explaining it in human terms, using an illustration from life that he knew they would understand. He asked them to think about a covenant, a contract, a will. And he pointed out that once such a document is ratified, it cannot be changed unless all parties agree. One person can't set it aside or add conditions to it. And God entered into such a covenant with Abraham, conditioned only by his faith. Because of his faith, God would bless him, befriend him, give him an everlasting homeland, and bless all nations through him. Abraham agreed to the terms of the covenant. The covenant was made between Abraham and God, but like a will, the covenant extended beyond Abraham himself. It was for Abraham and his seed. Now, the term seed, when used in this context, refers to a man's offspring. And the Jews were obviously Abraham's seed. They therefore insisted that the promises made to Abraham were promises made To them. And the Judaizers had convinced the Gentiles in Galatia that if they wanted to benefit from those promises, they too would have to become Jews. Paul's argument against them is a little tricky for us to follow because he resorts to some rabbinic hair splitting. He ignores the fact that the word seed, when referring to someone's offspring, is actually a collective noun, and then makes a point out of the fact that God didn't say the promise was to Abraham's seeds, but to his seed, and that ultimately Abraham's seed was a reference to Christ, the only one through whom Abraham's promises would be made available to all nations. That's a little convoluted for us, and we don't have to buy into his rabbinic logic to understand the point he's making, which is simply that the promise to bless all nations finds its fulfillment in Christ. And it's not a promise to all of Abraham's seed or seeds. It's a promise to his son. He then points out that the law, which he said came 430 years later, does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified. Now, the 430-year figure does create a bit of a problem. According to a timeline that can be created from records given in Genesis, the children of Israel went to Egypt 215 years after the promise was given to Abraham. And according to Exodus 12.40, They lived there for 430 years. That gives us 645 years from the promise to the law, which obviously creates a numerical discrepancy. But it's been long noted, and several reasonable explanations have been given so the issue can be left for the scholars to debate and need not cause us undue concern. We're going to just leave it point he's making is simply that the law came hundreds of years after the promise and therefore cannot be a condition to it. That God didn't give a promise to Abraham and then qualify it through Moses. That he didn't tack on some conditions to his promise several hundred years after the fact. Now That's not to suggest that there can't be conditions in a covenant. If the original covenant contained conditions, those conditions remain. But they don't change the nature of the covenant. They don't change a promise into something less. Now, our faith-only brethren apparently overlook this point. They insist that to condition our reception of God's gift by anything... Baptism in particular is to reduce the promise into something earned through obedience. But baptism is not a work that merits salvation. It's merely the way God has instructed us to accept the gift he wants to give us. It's the way we enter into the covenant with God. And... Contrary to the assertions of some, God's promises are always conditional. You can almost always find an if within the context of a promise if you look for it. And God's promises to Abraham were conditional. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, we find God's first words to Abraham were, Go forth, and I will bless If Abraham had not gone forth, he wouldn't have been blessed. And in the 17th chapter, God says, Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. Obviously, God wasn't insisting that Abraham be sinless in order to enter into a covenant with him. That would be impossible. What God is insisting is that Abraham not violate the conditions of the covenant, that he be faithful to them. And one of the conditions was circumcision. If Abraham wanted to acknowledge the offer of friendship with God, he had to acknowledge it through circumcision, a physical act that would set him apart from those not in a covenant relationship with God. Now, the Jews would eventually forget the real significance of circumcision, and Paul will argue that what God really wanted wasn't a physical circumcision, but a circumcised heart. But that did not invalidate the need for physical circumcision as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And those who today insist that a physical baptism is not important that God's only concern is spiritual immersion into him, they're making an assertion that is not supported by Scripture. If God made baptism a condition of the new covenant, we have no right to change the terms of the covenant. We can no more take away from a covenant conditions than the Judaizers could add conditions Contrary to what they were telling the Galatians, the law was not added as a condition to the promise. It was added to bring about fulfillment of the promise. This this, this is pretty heavy stuff. I hope you're staying with me. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Paul says the law was given because of transgression. And while we can't be absolutely certain what he meant by that, I believe he's saying that Abraham's descendants were not abiding by the conditions Of the covenant. They were transgressing. They weren't expressing the same kind of faith and trust in God that Abraham had expressed. They weren't acting like friends of God. They may have assumed they were friends of God because of their relationship to Abraham, but in reality, they had ceased being God's friend. They weren't listening to Him, they weren't trusting Him. And their behavior made it obvious they really weren't in a relationship with him. In fact, they had been cut off from access to God but didn't know it. So God commissioned angels to work through a mediator, Moses, to make them aware of the fact that they were not in fellowship with a holy God. And it was the law that made them keenly aware of their inadequacies. It pointed out just how far they had transgressed against the will of God. It was the law, in fact, that made them into transgressors because you can't actually transgress the law until the law has been given. You can fall short by not meeting an expected standard, but you cannot be a transgressor until the standard is written down in black and white or engraved on stone. And Abraham's descendants had strayed so far from the standard of faith and trust that he had established that it was necessary to write it down. Only then would they realize just how far they had drifted out of fellowship with God. The law, therefore, was given to make us realize where we stand in relation to God. To make us realize just how far we have transgressed against Him. It wasn't given as the basis whereby we could gain a relationship with God. All it did was make it painfully obvious how out of fellowship with Him we are. And since a relationship with God can never be earned, it can only be granted, God promised to make it possible. Abraham's seed, that through the promised seed, God would fulfill the promise, that he would fulfill his promise to make his blessings available to all peoples through his son. And since the fulfillment came through his son, there was no need for a mediator, no need for a Moses to stand between God and man and try to bring us back into relationship. Till so God fulfilled his promise through his son, through himself, there was no need for a mediated, Oh, there was, I'm sorry, there was a need for a mediated law, a law that would make us realize just how alienated we were from God. But once the promise was fulfilled, and we enter into a relationship with God on the basis of faith in what he did for us through his son, the law was no longer needed. It had served its purpose. It led us to the promise. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had not been given, or had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Absolutely not. The law is not an alternative way to God. If the law had been able to impart life, if man could gain eternal life through obedience to the law, then righteousness would have been based on the law, and all would have come to Christ or would have to come to God through the law. The law made it obvious that no one could come to God through law. No one could obey every law of God. And the more one would try, the more frustrated he would become, and the more obvious his imperfections would be. Now that's not a failure of the law. That's what it's supposed to do. The law, as revealed in Scripture, is intended to shut all men under sin, to condemn them and make them see how far out of fellowship with God they are. And that's what the law did. The law showed us it's impossible to earn a standing of righteousness before God. It therefore made us eager to accept the promise The promise that by trusting in what Christ did for us on the cross, God would consider us to be acceptable. The law led us to the promise because it closed off all other approaches to God. It made it obvious that all roads to God were dead ends except for one. The only way to God is through his Son, promised seed of Abraham so the law forced us to trust in the seed of Abraham to trust in the promises made to him and made available through him the law made us realize that Jesus is the only way to God so what's the relationship between the law and the promise the law led us to the promises made available through Christ. So no, we don't have to fulfill the requirements of the law to enter into relationship with God or to even maintain a relationship with Him. That's key. We've talked about this before. We don't even maintain our relationship by obedience because we fail. We can't obey it perfectly. Our relationship is given to us on the basis of a promise. But as we've already noted, that's not to say there aren't conditions for the promise. Our covenant with God had some conditions when it was offered. And we have been told what we must do to accept the offer today. And so we do it. Even if it is a theological hot-button issue and not everyone agrees on the importance of baptism, we do it. It's a condition. It was given. That's how we accept the offer. That's how we acknowledge our desire to say yes. And then if we accept his offer, he does expect us to demonstrate our relationship with him through expressions of our faith. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we praise. That's why we sing. That's why we study. That's why we have fellowship with God's people. These are expressions of our faith, not ways to earn salvation. And we also demonstrate it through the holy lifestyle that he makes possible through his spirit. Through His Spirit, we can live a life that honors our Heavenly Father. Doing so again is not earning salvation. It's merely accepting the terms of the covenant He wants to make with us. If we accept the terms, we can trust Him to do what he's promised to do. And my friend, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. That's what the good news is. This this mess between the law and promises and law and grace is so hard to wrap our head around. And it's so easy for us to slip back into a works mentality and ignore what we've been given in Christ. And when we do so, we lose the assurance of our salvation. We feel it's wrong to say, Yes, I know I'm going to heaven. If someone asks you, Are you going to heaven? you shouldn't say, Well, I hope so. What that's doing is saying, Well, I'm trying awful hard and I sure hope I make it. I hope those scales are being weighed out and God's going to say, yep, by the skin of your teeth, you've made it. Good job. No, 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 If someone asks you, are you going to heaven? I say, absolutely. Because Jesus paid for my sin. Amen. And I'm trusting him. <coughs> Tis so sweet.